This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Where were you the night of October 11th, 1944? I was at home, getting ready for bed. And where is your home, Mr. Atwood? Uh, 8493 Fountain Avenue, West Hollywood. The El Palacio Apartments. My wife and I worked there as housekeeping services. Did you hear or see anything out of the ordinary that night? Well, I usually don't like to meddle in the affairs of the residents. I mean to say that I'm not a snoop, officer. Answer the question, Mr. Atwood. Okay, okay. I couldn't get to sleep that night because I heard some noises upstairs. A, a woman's heels clicking back and forth on the kitchen tile. I thought maybe she was pacing or something because that's what I felt like doing. But I didn't want to wake up my wife. Around what time did you hear these noises? Couldn't tell you. But it must have been in the middle of the night. Around midnight or so. Go on. A while later, I heard a crash. Like someone dropping a metal tray. I remember thinking it was probably something Lulu and I would have to clean up the next morning. Lulu is your wife, correct? That's right. And she's the one that found the victim? She saw her first when we came in to clean the next morning. Oh, that poor, poor girl. She was always such a sweetheart, and so young, too. Lulu was nearly hysterical when we found her. And how did you find her, Mr. Atwood? We came around to clean the apartment at 11 a.m. that morning, just like always. But this time, her door was wide open. Lulu could tell something was wrong right away, but I thought that maybe the girl had just stepped out for a moment. When we got in, we noticed there was water on the floor, coming from the bathroom. Lulu opened the door and... There she was, going face down in the bathtub. Do you know of anyone who could have attacked her last night, Mr. Atwood? That's the thing, officer. From the sounds I heard that night, I could have sworn she was alone. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're going to be diving deeper into the mystery surrounding the 1944 death of socialite heiress and aspiring actress Georgette Bauerdorf. Who, despite her wealthy and connected lifestyle, met her end in a way that shocked Hollywood and left police scratching their heads. And led some investigators to later connect her death to another famous Los Angeles murder case. To this day, her murder has never been solved. This is episode 20 of Unsolved Murders and the final installment of the Georgette Bauerdorf case. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. 
Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join in the conversation. And now, back to our mystery. In 1944, Georgette Bauerdorf seemed to have the perfect life. She was just beginning her career as an actress, rubbing elbows with A-list celebrities at her hostess job at the Hollywood Canteen. The Hollywood Canteen began in 1942 as a way for the Hollywood studios to publicly support the U.S. troops in World War II. They would loan out stars to serve as hosts for the servicemen-only club, enticing young men to join up to the military for the chance to get a glimpse of their favorite celebrities. And the ploy worked. Here's a clip from the 1944 movie Hollywood Canteen that was just as much advertisement as it was entertainment. Good evening, Hollywood Canteen. Oh, yes, all the stars are here tonight. You say you want to come down? No, I'm sorry. The canteen is for servicemen. The only way you can see the canteen is to join the Army, the Navy, the Marines or join the rest of the world and see the picture. Georgette was one of the many unknown but pretty faces under studio contract that filled out the hostess roster when executives ran out of big-name celebrities to staff the canteen. But unlike many of her starving artist peers, Georgette's oil baron father allowed her to live like the rich and famous before her career even got off the ground. Daddy, the shoes you got me in Paris got all worn out from dancing. I need to find another pair just as nice for next week's shift at the canteen. I heard Bing Crosby's going to be the big act. Of course, Pumpkin. I'll have my secretary wire you money in the morning. She already had her own two-story suite at the swanky West Hollywood El Palacio Apartments, complete with a balcony and in-house maid service. And she would often use her home to host parties for the World War II servicemen she met at the canteen. All right, it's getting late, but I suppose playing one more song couldn't hurt. But her charmed life came to a violent end on the night of October 11, 1944. She left work at the Hollywood Canteen that night at 11 p.m., picking up and dropping off a hitchhiker on her way home. She arrived at her apartment alone, ate a quick meal, and died shortly thereafter in the wee hours of the morning of October 12th. And her body would be discovered around 11.10 a.m. by the housekeeping staff, a married couple named Fred and Lulu Atwood. Good morning, Miss Bauerdorf, housekeeping. Oh, my. What is it now, dear? Look, Fred, Miss Bauerdorf's door just swung right open. She probably just left it unlocked to get her mail. And leave it half open like that? Why, simply anyone could walk in. This isn't the slums, dear. The people in this neighborhood are more respectable than that. We'll leave it open. I'm sure she'll be back shortly. You see? Everything's in its proper place. I suppose you're right. Oh, the floor's all wet. God, it looks like it's coming from the bathroom. <sighs> Must be a leak. I'll have to get the toolkit from the shed. Ah! Lulu, what's oh, wrong? It's it's Miss Bardorf. She's... Oh, Lulu. Lulu, you better ring the police. I think we've got a lot more than a leak on our hands. Lulu Atwood found Georgette floating face down in her tub, with water still dripping from the faucet. She was wearing the top half of a pink pajama set 
and naked from the waist down. Although there was water on the floor, there was no blood or obvious signs of struggle in the bathroom. And nothing was stolen from the apartment. There was even a large roll of bills and thousands of dollars of sterling silver left untouched in an open trunk in the bedroom. It was clear from the outset that this wasn't a robbery gone wrong. But it wasn't immediately clear that it was a murder either. Right. Investigators initially believed that Georgette had suffered some sort of fainting spell or epileptic fit while filling her bath, fallen in, and drowned. Georgette's own father didn't suspect foul play either. Immediately after hearing of his daughter's death, he told the L.A. Times, I'm certain this death was accidental. We know she suffered from cramps and heartaches and refused to go to the doctor. Perhaps they might have caused it. George Bauerdorf may have believed a medical condition led to Georgette's drowning, but none of Georgette's friends in Los Angeles ever heard her say anything about heartaches. Maybe she just never brought up her health in casual conversation. Or maybe dear old dad didn't want to believe that his youngest daughter could have met a more violent end. Either way, the accidental death theory was quickly disproven when investigators looked a little further. Okay, the scene has been photographed. You can go ahead and examine the body. Thanks. Shame someone already cleared the tub, though. A lot of evidence right down the drain. That was the couple who found her. They thought she might still be alive. Guess I can't blame them. The warm water probably kept her looking fresh rather than cold and blue. Let's see here. Hmm. Did the officers tell you they thought this was a drowning case? That's what I heard. No way it was just a fainting spell that got her into this tub. Look at these bruises. And her face and hands, they're all scratched up. Looks like she got into a fight. Yeah, and a pretty recent one, too. This look like the kind of girl who gets into a bar brawl before bedtime? Not really, but it doesn't seem like someone broke into the apartment to beat her up. Nothing was stolen. Then we're missing something. Look right here. There's something between her teeth? Yeah. <clears throat> here we go. Ah! What is that? It looks like some sort of cloth was jammed down her throat. A towel, maybe. Looks like this girl didn't drown after all. She was strangled. That one little piece of cloth sent investigators on a long wild goose chase. At first, it seemed like it was just an ordinary towel, the kind you would find in any bathroom. But the fabric wasn't a towel at all. It was a bandage. And not just any bandage. It was a very specific type of bandage that had only been produced overseas. So the question became, what was a foreign bandage doing shoved several inches down Georgette Bauerdorf's throat? It probably wasn't something she had lying around the house, so it must have been something the killer brought with him. And police theorized that the killer may have been an American GI, who brought the bandage back with them from abroad. Not entirely surprising, given the clientele Georgette worked with at the Hollywood Canteen. But why would a GI bring a bandage with them to her house? If they were planning on strangling her there, surely the killer could have found something more convenient. That little piece of cloth opened more questions than answers. As did the state of the crime scene. Right. For one thing, there was very little blood. The bruises on Georgette's body and fists made it clear that she fought back. She had dirt under her fingernails, and her knuckles were smashed. 
She also had several significant scrapes all over her body, as if from an assailant's nails, but no blood or sign of a struggle in her apartment. The only place that was less than pristine was Georgette's bedroom, where the blankets on the bed had been pulled aside and the bottom half of her pink pajama set was found torn on the floor. Had the killer tidied up after Georgette's death? If they had, they likely forgot one important detail, the cigarette butts in the ashtray. Although friends said that Georgette didn't smoke, she did have over enough visitors who did to justify having ashtrays in her house. And when investigators arrived, they found the trays full of recently smoked cigarette butts. They weren't from Georgette. She had been wearing lipstick the night of her death and hadn't had a chance to wash it off before she was strangled. But those cigarette butts were lipstick-free. So, who was smoking in Georgette's apartment that night? The bandage, the blood, the money, the ashtrays... All of these questions already baffled police. But there was one more question still weighing on everyone's mind. Do you think she was raped? Now, now, detective, don't jump to any conclusions. But think about it, Sarge. That little pink pajama set of hers we found? Why, she was only wearing the top half. She could have been drawing a bath before she died. Maybe she just took them off first. But the way they were torn... Could have been old tears. We can't really know. A girl with that kind of money, and she can't get her clothes repaired? Or just buy new pajamas? I know you don't want to think about it, but we have to start looking at this as a crime of a sexual nature. I suppose the autopsy will tell us for certain. When the autopsy came back, it confirmed for investigators that Georgette had been raped before her death. But since this was before DNA testing was possible, there wasn't a whole lot they could do with this new information. Instead, the investigation turned to the question of what had happened to Georgette's car. When we said before that nothing was stolen from the scene of the crime, well, that wasn't quite accurate. There was $100 possibly missing from Georgette's purse. Although no one was able to conclusively tell whether the money had been stolen or simply moved by Georgette herself. And her green 1936 Pontiac Coupe was missing from her garage. Although technically belonging to Georgette's sister, Connie, Georgette had been using the car to get to and from work while Connie was living with the rest of the Bowerdorf family in New York. And since Georgette had used the car to get home that night, detectives knew that it must have been taken by the killer himself. Hey, watch it, buddy. When investigators searched for the car, they found it more quickly than they had anticipated. It had been abandoned 11 miles away from El Palacio on a street just south of downtown Los Angeles. Apparently, the killer had simply driven the car until it ran out of gas and left it by the side of the road. Cars didn't get great mileage in 1944. And this car had been through a lot. There was some damage to the front fender that mechanics said likely came from a recent collision with another car. But no other evidence as to the killer's identity was found in the car. And it seemed like yet another perplexing trail had gone cold. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, let's continue the story. 
From our modern-day perspective, there are a lot of things about the Georgette Bauerdorf case that are incredibly frustrating. For one thing, there's a lot more that can be done with forensic evidence, like DNA now, that can be done in 1944. And security cameras outside apartments like Georgette's are a lot more common. But there were still some avenues of inquiry that police at the time just didn't seem interested in going down. One of which involved the testimony of one of Georgette's neighbors, who said that he had heard someone yell, Stop, stop, you're killing me, on the night of Georgette's death. But instead of calling the police, the neighbor simply rolled over and went back to bed. He assumed that it was some sort of domestic dispute and decided that the best course of action would be to let them work it out for themselves. It was one of the more chilling examples of the bystander effect, when a person decides not to call for help in an emergency because they believe that someone else will do it. As well as an example of how many people at the time didn't take domestic abuse nearly seriously enough. If the neighbor had simply called the police, maybe Georgette would still be alive today. The neighbor wasn't investigated any further, and neither were the many fingerprints that were found at the crime scene. Right. We mentioned last episode that Sergeant Gordon Adland, the hitchhiker who was one of the last people to see Georgette alive, was never fingerprinted for his connection to the case. Either to match his prints to those found at the crime scene, or to narrow down the list of suspects who could have stolen and abandoned Georgette's car. He was never even brought in for further questioning. Which is strange, because investigators were already beginning to suspect that a serviceman had killed Georgette. There was evidence to back up that theory. Both Georgette's work at the Hollywood canteen and the foreign bandage found in her throat supported that conclusion. And police also had reason to believe that she had been killed by a tall man. Oh, 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 I know this one. It's because they could tell from the shape of her bruises that the blows had come from someone much taller, right? Mm, Nothing that sophisticated. Police thought a tall man killed Georgette because her front door light had been unscrewed. I don't think I follow. Ah, Well, the light above Georgette's apartment door was nearly eight feet from the ground, so it could have only been unscrewed by someone fairly tall, or with access to something to step on. Since there was nothing outside her door that could plausibly hold a person's weight, police believed Georgette's killer had simply stretched to reach the light. Okay. But what does a door light have to do with her murder? Well, maybe quite a bit. Police had been stumped as to why no one seemed to have broken down Georgette's door, and the discovery of the light bulb led them to two possible scenarios. The first is that someone waited for Georgette to enter her apartment, then knocked on her door. Without her door light on, she wouldn't have been able to see who was at the door and might have opened up to see who it was. Then the killer could push his way in easily. Hello? Knock, knock. That's terrifying. What's the second option? That the killer found some other way into Georgette's apartment, either through a window or by swiping a spare room key from the property manager and laid in wait for Georgette to arrive. When she entered her darkened house with the door light off, the killer would have a moment where he could see her, but she couldn't see him. He could use that time to hide or grab her as she walked in her apartment without suspecting a thing. Welcome home. Wow. So either way, it looks like the killer plotted this way out in advance. Right. Although the fact Georgette had been raped before her death points to a crime of passion, the unscrewed light bulb over her door points to a cold, calculated murder. It almost sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. How many killers does it take to unscrew a light bulb? Well, 
probably only one. From the facts we have so far, we can guess that Georgette was killed by a tall serviceman with a smoking habit that Georgette recognized, but didn't know well enough to open her door willingly past midnight. Do we know anyone who fits that description? Sergeant Adlan fits at least some of it, but as we discussed last episode, his later statement to police that drew attention to his own involvement makes him an unlikely suspect. Well, what about that jitterbugging soldier? You know, the one who wouldn't leave Georgette alone at the canteen the night of her death? Cosmo Volpe? There are certainly plenty of people who think that he may have tried to follow Georgette home in a jealous rage that night, after she had repeatedly spurned his advances. It would certainly support Sergeant Adlan's statement that Georgette drove like she was being followed. But in that case, would he have had enough foresight to unscrew Georgette's light bulb? Maybe not. But there were plenty of other soldiers at the canteen who might have wanted Georgette for themselves as well. And since she threw so many house parties, they would have known exactly where she lived and what the setup of her front door looked like. That's true. And if Georgette had noticed one of those soldiers had a dangerous crush on her, she might have wanted to get out of town for a while. Of course. She had just purchased a plane ticket to visit her boyfriend in El Paso earlier that day. Was it because she suspected someone close to her was planning something? Police did look into the possibility of a soldier from the canteen following her home on October 11th. Georgette had a date book with all the names of the soldiers she had dated or met with. What's more, she had saved stacks of thank you letters from servicemen who had stayed at her apartment. Dear Miss Georgette, I'm writing to thank you for the marvelous time I spent at your apartment last week. You're the most generous gal I've ever met. I didn't think I'd find anywhere nice to stay in Los Angeles, but you proved me wrong. I've never had a better view of the Hollywood land sign. I'll think of you every day once they send me overseas. Police gathered up the names for questioning, but apparently none seemed like convincing enough killers. Georgette Bardorf? Sure, I remember her. She was a sweet blonde with the green eyes, right? She was a brunette. Oh. Oh, well, then I guess I didn't know her after all. Miss Georgette, she once gave me $50 for a new suit. I'd have protected her with my life after that. Where were you the night of October 11th, 1944? I was shipped out to Fort Belvoir the day before. Wasn't even on the West Coast that night. Well, it looks like your story checks out. You're free to go. Of particular interest to the police was one Mr. Wade, the mysterious name in Georgette's datebook under the header of October 10th, the day before her death. Most researchers today believe that Mr. Wade was another soldier Georgette met at the canteen. But as he was never publicly identified, we can't know for sure. We don't even know whether or not Mr. Wade and Georgette ended up meeting that night. Georgette was fastidious about keeping her date book, but she wasn't big on the details. She never wrote more than just a name, a place, or a time. Leaving an enigmatic trail of breadcrumbs for investigators. But there was one soldier that police hadn't yet looked into, Private Jerome M. Brown. As we've mentioned, Jerry Brown was Georgette's long-distance boyfriend, whom she was planning to fly out to meet at the time of her death. But despite Georgette's apparent devotion and the expensive plane ticket, this was a romance at its earliest stages. The pair had only met four months earlier, when Jerry had driven up from an army base near San Diego to visit the Hollywood canteen for the weekend. He and Georgette hit it off right away, and when he returned to Camp Callan, the pair exchanged letters and calls. And their correspondence continued when he was assigned to Fort Bliss, near El Paso, Texas. 
If Georgette had made the trip out to El Paso, it would have only been the second time she had ever seen her beau in person. While it's not likely Jerry had anything to do with his girlfriend's death, he was 800 miles away at the time, after all, he might have inadvertently caused some jealousy among the other servicemen at the canteen. Georgette was a hot commodity, especially since her preference for dating soldiers was well known. But after meeting Jerry, Georgette made it very clear she was off the market. But despite this plausible motive, police were never able to pin down anything concrete on any serviceman from the canteen. So maybe the soldier angle wasn't correct. There was one other possible suspect who had the means to enter Georgette's apartment that night. And who would that be? Fred Atwood. The janitor? Carter, you're getting pretty close to the butler did it territory. What motive could he have possibly had? It's tough to say. Georgette seemed like more or less a model tenant. Maybe he was sick of having to clean up after her house parties? Keep it quiet up there! Maybe. But murder is a pretty extreme solution to that problem. Well, he might not have had a motive, but he certainly had means. He would have easy access to a stepladder to unscrew her light bulb and had a copy of the keys to let himself into her apartment. All that was left was to play innocent when his wife found Georgette's body. Still, I'm not sure why he'd pick Georgette as his victim. How about the most universal motivating factor? Money. But all her valuables were still left in the apartment. No, no, not Georgette's money. Someone else's. Someone who was jealous or had a grudge against her, but no way to easily enter her apartment. They could have paid off Fred Atwood to let them inside, then done the deed themselves. All you need to do is turn off the light, give me the key, and look the other way. The money will be on your doorstep in the morning. Oh, so in that case, it could have been almost anyone. Cosmo Volpe, another soldier from the canteen, a jealous co-worker. Or it could have been someone like Jack Anderson Wilson. Jack Anderson Wilson. Who's that? Did I miss something? Oh, I have a lot to say about Jack Anderson Wilson. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor. Okay, Carter, the suspense is killing me. Who is Jack Anderson Wilson? Jack Anderson Wilson, who also went by the aliases Arnold Smith and Al Morrison, was never formally connected to the George at Bauerdorf case. He was simply a petty thief and con artist who lived in Los Angeles at the time. So why do people think that he had something to do with Georgette's death? Well, he was tall, he was a sex offender, and he was known to impersonate soldiers in order to get free food and money. Okay, that does seem to match a lot of what we know about our killer. And he was also linked to another famous Los Angeles murder, the Black Dahlia. We covered her story in more detail in earlier episodes, but the Black Dahlia was a name given by the media to Elizabeth Short, Another pretty, L.A. 20-something, aspiring movie star whose life was cut short by a gruesome murder. In January of 1947, Elizabeth's tortured and mutilated body was found in an empty lot by a passerby. Her murderer was also famously never found. Could Georgette's death have been a precursor to the Black Dahlias? If Jack Anderson Wilson did kill both women, then perhaps he only killed Elizabeth after realizing he got away with killing Georgette. Although the modus operandi of these crimes were different, Georgette and Elizabeth were similar in age and appearance, both had dated soldiers, and both were killed in a bathtub. Some researchers have gone as far as to suggest that the two knew each other before their deaths. However, this seems unlikely. Georgette and Elizabeth didn't run in the same social circles, and Elizabeth never stayed at the same place for very long. 
Jack Anderson Wilson was never questioned for either crime, however, because shortly after Elizabeth Short's death, he died in a fire he accidentally started by falling asleep with a lit cigarette. Some researchers believe that Jack Anderson Wilson was also responsible for a strange letter found a year after Georgette's death. On September 21, 1945, an 11-year-old named Marilyn Silk found a dirty envelope on top of a wall near Georgette's apartment building on her way home from school. (laughs) Marilyn, I heard Jimmy in third period likes you. He does not. Does too. Does not. Hey, look at this. Ew, what is that? It's an envelope. Oh, don't touch it. It's all dirty. I wonder what's in it. (laughs) Probably a love note from Jimmy. Cut it out. Oh, you're really opening it? Can I see? Ah! Out of curiosity, Marilyn opened the envelope and inside found a piece of paper that was smeared in what looked like to be blood. Terrified, she turned the note into authorities. The note was a message from someone claiming to be Georgette's killer. To the Los Angeles police. Almost a year ago, Georgette Bauerdorf, age 20, Hollywood canteen hostess, was murdered in her apartment in West Hollywood. Between now and October 11th, a year after her death, the one who murdered her will appear at the Hollywood canteen. The murderer will be in uniform. He has, since he committed the murder, been in action at Okinawa. The murder of Georgette Bauerdorf was divine retribution. Let the Los Angeles police arrest the murderer, if they can. So, finally, months after all the other clues had dried up, investigators finally got a new lead. In his taunt, the author of the note gave police a two-week window in which to find him at the canteen. Returning, if not to the scene of the crime, the place that people would most strongly associate with Georgette. Seemingly confirming the theory that Georgette had been killed by a serviceman. Or at least, someone who had dressed like one to get close to her. And possibly also confirming the theory that Georgette Bauerdorf's killer and the Black Dahlia killer were one and the same. As similarly provocative notes were sent to police after Elizabeth Short's murder investigation ran on. But ultimately, staking out the Hollywood canteen in search of Georgette's killer was like looking for a needle in a haystack. In its run from 1942 to 1945, the canteen served almost three million servicemen. And there was no guest list to keep track of the hundreds of visitors who arrived each night. Even the blood smeared on the note was a dead end. Chemical testing revealed that the red marks weren't blood at all. Just red iodine used to look like blood. And the fact that the note had been typed meant that investigators couldn't use fingerprinting or handwriting analysis to narrow down their list of possible killers. The note served as more of an odd epilogue to Georgette's story rather than its smoking gun. For my money, Jack Anderson Wilson is Georgette's killer. He ticks every box, tall, creepy, conniving, and violent. If he had come into Georgette's house by pretending to be a soldier, there's no telling what that kind of guy would have done when she told him she already had a boyfriend. Plus, the similarities between her death and the Black Dahlias are pretty striking. It would explain a lot if he was responsible for both of their deaths. It is a reasonable guess. But I think that one of the other soldiers in Georgette's datebook got a little too jealous and paid off her janitor to look the other way while he snuck in her apartment. I don't think the police's lines of questioning went far enough with the soldiers who frequented the Hollywood canteen. 
Nobody wanted to believe that the men they trusted to protect their country could plan such a horrible attack on one of its innocent civilians. But since the police in Georgette's day had a habit of throwing out evidence whenever a case went cold, there's no way to use modern forensic evidence to convict a killer for certain. In any case, Georgette's body was shipped back to her family's plot in Long Island, where it was buried along with many generations of Bauerdorfs. And that was the end of the mystery surrounding Georgette. Well, almost the end. Apparently, Georgette Bauerdorf's death also cursed the apartment building that she died in. No, really, Georgette was the first of a string of Hollywood starlets that both stayed on for a time in the El Palacio apartment building and died tragically young. The first was Marilyn Monroe, who lived there in 1947, just three years after Bauerdorf's death. At that time, Monroe herself was still a rising star, only having recently begun dyeing her hair blonde and going by the name Marilyn, rather than her birth name, Norma Jean. But she would soon move out of El Palacio when her film career began to take off. Making her connection to the apartment supposed curse a bit tenuous, she died of an overdose almost 15 years after she had moved out of the West Hollywood pad. But the death of the building's next famous tenant is harder to ignore. Dorothy Dandridge, the first African-American woman to be nominated for a Best Actress Oscar, died in her El Palacio apartment under mysterious circumstances in 1965. Reports conflicted on whether Dandridge was the victim of an accidental overdose or a rare type of embolism caused by an injury to her foot. But she was only 42 years old when she died. Her death sparked some people to refer to El Palacio as cursed. Although the coincidence is definitely spooky, it's not as strange when you consider the big picture. With its luxury amenities and prime West Hollywood location, the El Palacio was bound to draw a famous face or two. And in its 85 years of operation, the building has seen its fair share of deaths. Besides, it doesn't seem to bother stars like Lindsay Lohan, who, in 2007, reportedly bought the suite Marilyn Monroe lived in. And she has, so far, avoided the El Palacio curse. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. Again, that's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network, all one word. Well, we thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next installment. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. And we'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Jordan Lyric. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors include, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Nicholas Massu, Stephen Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>